Uh, this time I'll ask you to turn with me uh, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We'll be looking this morning at verses 1 through 20. As we've spent these, these few weeks going through portions of Luke's gospel, uh, recounting, looking at the, the time leading up to the birth of Christ, this morning we come to uh, this beautiful passage in Luke chapter 2, uh, focusing on the event itself, on, on the birth of Christ in this wonderful uh, birth announcement, if you will, uh, to the shepherds out in the field. And so uh, this morning we're looking at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Uh, you're welcome to remain seated. I'll read uh, this portion of God's word, and then, we'll, and then we'll pray. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Uh, pay careful attention. This is God's word. In those, de- in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, what joy we find in this part of your word, the birth of Christ, the announcement of the angels, the joy uh, and uh, haste of the shepherds, uh, and even Mary treasuring these things in her heart. Lord, we pray this morning that you would give us, too, that same sense of joy and delight in the coming of Christ, that your Holy Spirit, who inspired these words, would illumine our hearts and minds to understand them, uh, to apply them to our lives, and in all things to see Jesus. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, this morning, we, we want to ask the, the question at the heart of the scriptures, also at the heart of the Charlie Brown Christmas special, what is the message of Christmas? Uh, 
our, our, our culture, our community is often awash with different messages of, of what Christmas is all about. And so you can go anywhere these days and you walk into a store and what do you hear in the background? You hear, uh, you hear Muzak going on on the, on the speakers and this time of year it's all holiday music as they call it. It's all Christmas related music. And so I was walking in Lowe's last night and the, the message of Christmas at Lowe's uh, yesterday evening was about peace on earth, which uh, for, for this song meant no more wars, no more famine, uh, no more hungry children, no more uh, poverty, that that was the message of Christmas. The Christmas is about doing good and putting an end to any manner of suffering. There's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's a, a noble task uh, that we ought to pray for. Um, Perhaps you've watched the Christmas Carol uh, movies or read the story or perhaps watched the Muppets version of A Christmas Carol, whatever your uh, particular flavor is of that, and you you find the message of Christmas there. Ebenezer Scrooge, uh, seeing how much of a Scrooge he's been and then then seeing the joy that other people have. Uh, And he changes. He wishes everybody a Merry Christmas. He has a 180-degree turnaround um, in in that story. Or maybe you uh, prefer the National Lampoon's Christmas vacation message that uh, Christmas is really just miserable because you're around your family the whole time, and that's, that's the message of Christmas. Or perhaps some of you, I know this is true, some of you prefer the Hallmark movie Christmas message, which is similar to the Thanksgiving Christmas message of Hallmark or the Valentine's Day Christmas <laughs> message of Hallmark. Pick your holiday, Hallmark has a Christmas message for it, which usually involves some sort of unexpected romance around the holidays. You know, you weren't expecting it to be this guy or that girl, but there it was, right in front of you the whole time. Uh, it's all about finding uh, happiness and relationships. Lots of messages about Christmas all over the place that we're hearing all the time. And yet, for us to grasp what it's about, uh, we, we know we go back to the scriptures, to, to the origin story, if you will, to uh, the joy of that first Christmas announcement and proclamation. We go back to the beginning here. And that's what we've been doing these last few weeks. In Luke's gospel, in particular, we've, we've heard this message being delivered in multiple ways to different people, um, to John the Baptist's parents, this promise that they, in their old age, and Elizabeth, his mother, who had been barren, she would have a child who would be the forerunner, the, the precursor of the Savior. He would announce the way of the Lord. He would prepare the, for the coming of Christ. The message to Mary, uh, that she would be with child, though she had not known a man, that the Holy Spirit would uh, form the body of Jesus in a miraculous uh, conception, and that this would be the Savior who is to come angelic announcements of the Savior who is coming. A Savior is on the way. God is coming to his people. The wrongs will be made right. The mighty will be brought down. The humble lifted up. God is keeping his promises. And now at the birth of Jesus, we have the message continued, this time from angels to shepherds. And the heart of that message is this. We've got good news of great joy. And that good news that the angels announced to the shepherds is good news about Jesus, about who he is, and and what it is that he brings in his coming as our Redeemer. And so those are our two points this morning that we want to look at, who Jesus is and what it is that he brings. What has he accomplished 
for us. Uh, so let's look first at who Jesus is. Uh, notice, if you will, with me, the news of the angels to the shepherds in verses 10 and 11, uh, particularly verse 11. Uh, of course, you know every time angels appear on the scene, usually the first thing that they say to the people they're talking to is, fear not, uh, because angels are scary. And that's why they say, don't be afraid, because that would be your normal reaction. They find these shepherds in the field near Bethlehem, just kind of in this same region. Say, don't be afraid. We're, we're here with good news of great joy. And that good news is this. In the city of David, today is born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There's a whole lot packed into this description of who Jesus is. Uh, and all of it is reaching back into the promises of God in the Old Testament. You might think about it this way. The gospel writers, particularly Matthew and Luke and John, but Mark to a certain extent, Mark's a little bit different. The gospel writers, they, they kind of front load their introductions of Jesus with, uh, by pointing us to the Old Testament promises of Jesus. And, and Luke does that uh, in, a, in a major way in his gospel. He's pointing us again and again to the promises about the coming Messiah, the Savior, pointing us to God rescuing his people from sin. And all of that kind of comes to a crescendo here in the angelic announcement to the shepherds and the way that they describe Jesus. In fact, uh, if you look, up to this point in Luke's gospel, the name Jesus has only been mentioned once in the angel's instructions to Mary that when this baby is born, you are to name him Jesus. That's the name you'll give him. And then the, the second time it's mentioned is the verse 21 in this chapter, where Mary does what the angel said to do, and she names him Jesus. But his name isn't mentioned up to that point. Outside of that, he is simply described. Who, who is this Jesus? And the way he's described is summed up in this angelic announcement. He's born in the city of David. He's a savior. He is Christ. He is the Lord. Luke's main way of presenting Jesus to us is through the lens of the Old Testament promises. He's the fulfillment of those promises. He's the one that they have been waiting for. I want to look at kind of three, three ways that he describes Jesus here in this announcement of the angels. First, um, in, in other parts. First, he's the son of David. He's the son of David. This is prominent in Luke's gospel, that Jesus is connected to David and the promises that God made to David, that a king from David's line would reign forever and that God would rule through that king in rescuing his people. For example, Luke tells us that Joseph, Mary's husband, uh, is of the house and line of David. He's in that royal line. The angel tells Mary that Jesus will be king on the throne of his father, David. When Mary and Joseph go to register for the census, where do they go? They go to Bethlehem, David's city, because that's where David is from and Joseph is from David's line. And here in the angelic announcement to the shepherds, the angels specifically point out the fact that Jesus has been born in the city of David. Why is that important? Why does that matter 
that Jesus is connected to David? Why this emphasis on David and his descendants? At the heart of it is this covenant promise that God made to David. You can read it in 2 Samuel. God made a promise to David that he would establish David's line uh, as kings among his people and that one would come from David's line who would rule over God's people forever, that his would be a kingdom that had no end. And then you read through the rest of the Old Testament, First and Second Kings, and you got all these kings from the line of David. And guess what? None of them are the promised king. In fact, many of them are really, really bad. But throughout that time, the Lord keeps saying to them, you guys are wicked, you guys are unfaithful, but I'm not going to get rid of you because I've made promises to David that one of his line would reign forever and would reign in this place in Jerusalem and would be connected to the temple, that there's a promised king coming from David's line. The prophets pick this up. Isaiah says that the Savior, the Messiah, will spring from Jesse's root, David's father. He describes him as being full of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah tells us that a child will be born who will bring light into darkness, and he will sit on the throne of his father, David. The prophet Jeremiah speaks of a righteous branch coming from David's line who will restore God's people out from their exile. He'll bring them back. He'll bring them home. He will restore them. Micah tells us that the Savior will come from Bethlehem implicitly connecting it to David. David's line is important. These promises are important because it's David's descendant, one of his sons who will reign as a righteous king over God's people, who will restore God's people, who will bring forgiveness to God's people, who will bring light into their darkness and bring them peace from their enemies. And so the whole of the New Testament... Uh, throughout the whole of the New Testament, this connection to David is highlighted, that Jesus is the one who fulfills this promise. And I, I feel like uh, this is a little bit of speculation, but bear with me for a second. It seems to me, uh, I mean, I can just picture this, I guess I'll say it that way. I can picture the angels announcing to the shepherds and even the angels announcing to Mary uh, that her son would reign on David's throne forever. You can almost picture the prophets like, peeking back from behind the curtains in heaven, looking for the fulfillment of these things that they spoke of. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Nathan even, the one who spoke these words to David and Micah, uh, looking and seeing now, finally, these promises that were made to David, now they're finally coming to pass in Jesus. This baby, this child, born in humility, born in obscurity, he is the one who has been promised to God's people. This is the promised son of David. He's born in David's city. The angels also say that he is a savior who is Christ the Lord. This word Christ is the, the Greek word for, for the, the Old Testament word Messiah. It means the same thing. He's the anointed one. He's the one who is set aside as prophet, priest, and king to rule over God's people, to at last bring redemption. And all along the way, their expectation has been a, a human Messiah, a human Christ, a human anointed one from the line of David would come to rescue us. But here the angels kind of merge together two streams that come out of the Old Testament. One stream says, a, a son from David's line be the Christ, the Messiah, the one who will rescue us. 
And another stream says, God is coming to rescue us. And the angels are saying, by calling Jesus both Christ and Lord, Lord is a way of talking about God. The angels are saying, these two things are coming together in this baby, who is not only from David's line, but is also divine. He is God himself, born in the flesh. God come to us in the person of Jesus. He is Christ and Lord. And then third, this baby is both humble and exalted. He's humble and yet exalted. Uh, what do we mean by the fact that he's, he's humble? Well, he's born. You ever consider the fact that Jesus, simply by being born, a man is humbling himself. The eternal son of God takes on flesh and becomes one of us. He condescends, he comes low to us. He humbles himself for us. But that's, that's not it. That's not the only thing. The manger seems important here. Uh, it's mentioned three times in the passage. In the first part, that first scene where they go to Bethlehem for the, the registration, the census, Luke tells us uh, that Jesus is laid in a manger because there's no space for them in the inn. Uh, just for, for clarification, I don't think Jesus is born in a stable. Uh, this seems to be a family home. Uh, we translate the word inn, but it's probably more likely a guest room in a house. And there's lots of people there because there's lots of people there for a census. And so they're in a home, and you would often have a place in a home where animals could be fed. You might bring them in for the night, and they would have a little manger, a feeding trough there for the uh, animals to be fed. Uh, but this is not a sign of Jesus being rejected at the outset. You know, the, ho the innkeeper somehow sending away a pregnant woman. Uh, that, can't, that wouldn't happen. They're in a home. Uh, probably with some of David's family. But there's other people there. They're in the guest room. And when Jesus is born, there's no place for them in the guest room. And so they place him in a manger. And Luke's explaining why he's in the manger and not in a normal place for children. But then the angels tell the shepherds, this is how you'll know. This is the sign that the child uh, we're talking about, that you found him. He'll be in a manger. And then when they go to Bethlehem, they find the child in a manger. Now, what's the big deal about the manger? I mean, in some ways, the angels are just saying, this is how you'll recognize them. Kind of like if you were meeting somebody somewhere and they didn't know you, you might say, look, maybe in the parking lot, I'll be driving the black truck with the white sides four by four sticker on it. <laughs> that, that could describe many trucks, but you get the point. It's a recognition tool. This is what you should look for. He's in a manger, but it's also a humble place. Uh, you, you, you know, don't you, that normally Jerusalem is the city of David. Jerusalem is where the temple is. Jerusalem is where royalty is. And yet Bethlehem here is called the city of David. And Jesus is not born in a palace where there would be ample space and proper places to, to put a, a newborn child, not in a feeding trough. Jesus is not born in a palace. He's born in a family home in a small little village near Jerusalem. And it's so humble that don't, they don't even have a crib set aside for him. They have to put him in the feeding trough. It's a humble place. He is humble. The angels come to shepherds first, lowly and despised shepherds uh, out in the fields watching their flocks by night. And these are the ones to whom the angels speak first. These are the ones who are first invited to come and to see, to find the Savior. 
to behold him for themselves. He is a humble savior, which means he's accessible. He, he comes for all. Uh, he's born as a baby, just like the rest of us. He's born in a humble place. He's accessible. He's not out of reach. He's not untouchable. Jesus is born to humble parents. Later, we're told in Luke's gospel that when Joseph and Mary go to the temple to offer their sacrifices, um, that they offer the sacrifices of those who were poor. It was the most they could afford, um, you know, a pigeon and turtle doves. Uh, they were poor people. They were not rich uh, by human standards. Jesus is born in humble circumstances, and yet he is exalted. Who else has angels announcing their birth? Uh, you know, if you go to a wealthy, famous person's birthday party, you expect to see other wealthy, famous people there because it's not a humble place, right? Um, Jesus here is announced by angels. His birth is proclaimed by the heavenly hosts. The, the armies of heaven proclaim that the Prince of Peace has come, that the Savior has arrived. He is exalted. He is to be worshipped. And indeed, the shepherds do so. Later, Matthew's gospel tells us, kings from the east, wise men from the east come. They worship Jesus. He is accessible and yet also exalted. And the angels highlight this in their song, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This humble child born in humble circumstances, he is the promised son of David. He is Christ the Lord, and he is to be exalted as we come to him uh, in faith. Jesus is the long-awaited Savior, the long-promised Messiah. And the angelic announcement confirms all that they have waited for has now come to pass in the birth of this child. That's who Jesus is. What is it that Jesus brings? I'm going to focus here on the song of the angels in verse 14 to highlight the thing that Jesus brings in his redemptive work. In verse 14, the angels uh, begin to sing. They're overcome with joy at this announcement, and they sing, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus brings peace. Uh, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Jesus brings peace between God and man, between us and one another. Now, what is, what is this peace? Um, it's not primarily an emotional experience, although it certainly uh, can produce that. Uh, that's, it's not disconnected from that. But it's not primarily, um, you know, Kung Fu Panda inner peace. That's not what the angels are describing here. Uh, the angels are describing something objective, something outside of you when they describe peace that God is giving to those with whom he is well pleased. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And shalom describes the way things ought to be. It describes wholeness. It describes things that have been divided and at odds being brought back together. That the thing that has divided them has been put aside, has been dealt with fully. So it's not primarily an emotional experience, a sense of comfort and well-being, though it certainly can bring that. Peace here 
is this. The angels are announcing that in the birth of this child, the hostility, the enmity that exists between us and God because of our sin will be put to death. And there will be peace from God to us through what this child will eventually accomplish. So it's objective. It's outside of us. But it's also subjective because you feel the lack of peace. right? We all, we all feel that. I don't think the shepherds heard this and thought, oh, that's good because my self-esteem is so low. I just need some sense of inner peace here. That's not what they heard. What they heard was God is ending hostility. God is dealing with sin. God is bringing peace to his people. You think about it this way, just by way of illustration. Some of you have read The Pilgrim's Progress. Some of you may be reading that now. Uh, In that story, there's the main character, the pilgrim. His name is Christian. Uh, He starts off the story with this burden on his back. The burden kind of represents his objective guilt. He is a sinner before a holy God. But he feels that burden. It's outside of him, and it's inside of him as well. You see what I'm saying? That, that's the, the turmoil that this piece is meant to address. We, we all, outside of Jesus Christ, stand before God with an objective, external guilt because of our sin. And, and, and that creates this... Uh, enmity, this hostility between us and God, this alienation so that we are not right with him. And because we were made to be right with God, to live before him in fellowship with him, and when that's not the case, we feel it. We, we feel that lack of peace. We feel that inner turmoil, that discontent, Misery, anxiety, depression, all of that can be uh, bound up with the fact that outside of Jesus, we are not right with the holy God, and we need to be made right with him. And the good news that the angels bring is that Jesus will establish this peace. Henry David Thoreau, uh, who was an American poet, uh, 19th century at the end of his life, the story goes different ways. I think it was his aunt who was with him near the end of his life uh, asked him if he had made peace with God. And his response to that was, I didn't know we were quarreling. Some people don't feel the objective reality of a lack of peace with God. But the question remains... What solution do we have to that inner sense of turmoil? What solution do we have to the uh, inescapable reality? Things are not right in the world, and that things are often not right within us. The Bible says that the root problem that produces both of those things, things not right in the world, things not right within us, that the root problem at both of those for both of those, is sin. That ever since sin came into the world through Adam and Eve, it's as if the world has been unraveling. It's not at peace. There's no wholeness there. There's alienation between us and God. There's alienation between us and one another. And we all feel it. And you can't deny it objectively. Just look at the news. 
Look at your neighborhood. Look at your family. There, there's a reality that we can't escape. And Jesus comes to give us peace by objectively dealing with the thing that has unraveled us in this world, our sin, and by applying it to our hearts so that we can experience it for ourselves. I put on the front of your bulletin the third verse from It Came Upon a Midnight Clear. I heard somebody referencing this earlier in the week, and it just struck me. What a beautiful way, or well, what a realistic way, I should say, of describing this lack of peace. Ye beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low. Picture Pilgrim with the burden on his back, bending low. Who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. Look now, for glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing. A rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing. Do you hear in that description the lack of peace that exists because of sin? We are bending low. We are weary. Uh, we are worn out by sin and its effects. And the angels come with good news, great joy, peace among those with whom God is pleased. This peace is the removal of alienation between us and God through Jesus conquering the thing that divides us, our sin. How does he do it? How does he do it? He does it through his cross. In, in Scripture, peace, in the way we're describing it, this objective peace, is always connected to the cross of Jesus. Paul says, he made peace by his cross in Colossians 1. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, he himself is our peace, who, who takes away the sin that divides us from God and then takes away the things that divide us from one another. He himself is our peace. And in the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, when Christ comes and does away with sin and all of its effect and every, every tear wiped away, every sorrow put away, no more, no more sin, no more suffering, no more death. The, the whole environment of life with God with no sin is peace and joy and love in the presence of God. Jesus brings this peace through his cross by becoming the source of our lack of peace in our place. Jesus brings us peace by becoming sin on our behalf and taking in his flesh at the cross the full weight of the penalty for our sins so that the thing that divides us from God, Jesus takes on himself. And only he can bear it. Only he can take it and rise again from the dead on the third day. Jesus becomes our peace by making himself our sin and being forsaken by the Father at the cross for our sake so that in his resurrection we might be brought back together with him. How, how do we receive this peace? You receive it by resting in it. You cannot earn it. That's the whole point of Jesus accomplishing peace for us. He does it and then he offers it to you to receive as a gift through faith. And I think everybody wants to experience uh, an end to turmoil, whether inside or outside of our hearts. But what we often 
miss is that Jesus is the one who's already ended it. He's already accomplished peace for us. But what we tend to do is we, we take it into our own hands. We strive. We, we think, if I can work harder to maybe get the things that I want, that will give me peace. Uh, or if, if I can just have enough effort, enough endurance, then I can secure this peace for me. And at the end of it, you're no better off than you were when you started. This peace that Jesus offers has to be received as a gift. He has accomplished it. You can rest in it. You don't have to strive for it. You don't have to try to earn it. You can simply receive it as a gift from him. Jesus has conquered sin and death on our behalf. He has done all that is necessary for our salvation and calls us to rest in him and to rejoice in the peace that he has brought us. What do we do with this? seeing who Jesus is and seeing what he has done for us. Uh, here are just a, a few things to think about. The angels announced to the shepherds that Jesus was born for them. It says, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus came for, for them. Jesus came for you. Do you know that he came for you? Do you know that he is a Savior for, for you and that he offers himself to, to each of you, to be received by faith, to be trusted, to be loved, to be followed. Do you see that Jesus came for you? The way you do that is by acknowledging, I'm not okay. Acknowledging my biggest problem is not outside of me, but inside of me. Acknowledging that I need to be forgiven for sins. And knowing that in Jesus Christ, all sins are forgiven. That he welcomes the sinner who comes to him in faith. When you do that, you have peace. He gives you peace. He's established it for you. It's there for you to receive. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ already, then this peace is already yours. Uh, it is in your possession. You have been made right with God through the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And your experience of that peace is the fruit of faith continuing to believe God's promises, continuing to walk in repentance and faith. And if you have this peace, I want to encourage you today uh, to let it give you uh, the awestruck wonder that the shepherds and Mary had when they beheld God's mercy. I think it's striking that the shepherds heard the angels and went in haste, and then they joyfully told everybody what they had heard. And, and apparently there were others there who heard it, and rejoice with them. It's as if uh, they were rejoicing so that others might see their joy and join them in it. What would it look like if we were held in awestruck wonder at the sheer mercy of God and the gospel for us? Just a couple of thoughts. One, if we continue to behold the wonder of God's mercy in Jesus we might listen to what God says about us more than any other voice, even our own. The angels announce there's peace to those with whom God is pleased. If you're a Christian, do you believe that God is pleased with you through the work of Jesus? Do you believe that when he looks at you, he sees the beauty and the righteousness of his own son? Do you believe that you, if you're in Christ, the Father's love for you can never increase, can never decrease? 
It is perfect. It is full. He delights in you because you are in Christ and he delights in Jesus as his well-beloved son. If, if you believed what God said about you by virtue of faith in Jesus Christ, that voice ought to dominate over every other voice that we hear. The voice that you hear when you look in the mirror, the voice that you hear at night when you think about all the things that you said and did that you wish you hadn't said or done, uh, the voice that you hear from the world around you, the culture, people who dislike you, whatever it is. The angels say to those who are in Christ, God is well pleased with you because he is well pleased with Jesus. Do you think he's still waiting for you to prove it, to earn it? He's not. Christ has done it for you. He has secured for you peace and God's love. And if you are in Christ, it is yours and cannot be taken away. Perhaps as we rest in God's love for us, we might walk in a deeper repentance over our sin to consider the cost of this peace, the cross, the giving of the Son of God in our place. And perhaps we might let that costly grace move us to see at one and the same time how deeply flawed we are and in need of God's grace, and at the same time how deeply loved you are that the Father would give his Son for you. Those twin truths, what the hymn describes as the wonders of redeeming love and our unworthiness, those twin truths would free you to honestly confess your sins and walk in faith before the Lord Rather than just focusing on how others have sinned against you or hiding your sin or ignoring it, you can come to God who knows all of your stuff and who loves you because he's given you Jesus in your place and he is well pleased with you through Christ. His love for you is his love for his son. The shepherds rejoiced at this good news for them and they shared it with others. Mary treasured and pondered these things in her heart, seeking to better understand who this child was. Let us rejoice today. The long-awaited Savior has come, and he has brought us peace in his cross and his resurrection. And may we celebrate him, share him with others, and seek to know him better.